All right. Well, good morning, my church. How are you this morning? Hey, I just want to share a couple things with you. I'm not going to preach today. I'm not going to speak, but I'm just going to, I'm going to introduce Ed here in just a moment. But uh, I want to share with you before I do that, uh, Jeff uh, and Christy and their family are out of town. They're on vacation, and he asked me to send his uh, wishes to you. How many of y'all saw him on Fox and Friends? Anybody? Or John? <laughs> I don't know how that guy does it. He shows up wherever a camera is, and now all of a sudden he's on national television waving at everybody because they're up in New York. And so uh, he and Ashley had uh, an opportunity to do that. But uh, he did want me to tell you hello. He will be back uh, in just a few days. And uh, uh, until then, I think he's pretty concerned that he's left everything in the hands of a bunch of old men. Okay? I mean, you got Richard. You got me. And if you think either one of us are old, wait till you see Ed here in just a moment. So... (laughs) I'm just kidding. I grew up with it. Well, we didn't grow up together. We played ball together in high school back in the day, and uh, that was a a fun time back then. But he's going to kick off a series for us entitled Overflow, How to Keep That Tank Full um, in You. And uh, you understand, I know, what that means to feel like you're on empty all the time. But, uh, you know, before Ed comes, in fact, Ed, come on up if you want to. Ed's uh, Ed's son, Will, how many of y'all know Will? He's the one over here who plays that gold guitar. You know, uh, he, uh, he can pick it uh, like the, with the best of them. But, but Will is headed off to the University of Georgia. Is it today? <laughs> all right. There's all the dog fans. And so I think this is the last Sunday for Will. They're going to be leaving either today or tomorrow or what have you. But uh, Will's another product of people like Jeff Murphy, Jeffrey May, and all those who, who take these young guys and they develop them into who they are. Uh, and so we're glad to be sending off another missionary into the mission field, uh, in this case, Athens, Georgia, at uh, UGA. So we're going to start a series of overflow. Y'all welcome me out here, would you? I want to give y'all just a, a, a quick 60-second bio, I guess. That was a, that was a little bio, but uh, I want to give you a 60-second bio. I grew up Jewish, um, lived the first 36 and a half years of my life Jewish. And I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but I grew up very Jewish. Um, every, I don't know if that sounds right or doesn't sound right, but, uh, but that's the way I grew up. Uh, every time the doors were open to the synagogue, we were there. <clears throat> I was there on Tuesday after school for Hebrew school. I was there on Thursday after school for Hebrew school. I was there on Friday night for a Sabbath service. I was there on Sunday morning, excuse me, Saturday morning for a worship service, and I was there on Sunday morning for Sunday school. So I didn't grow up without religion. I grew up with a bunch of religion. But I grew up with, with, with religion, not necessarily with relationship. <clears throat> until, uh, that was 36 and a half years, until early 2000s, decided to pick up a Bible. And that's the only supernatural book that there is. And it is absolutely super, supernatural. Picked it up, started on page one. It does have a left side. There is an Old Testament there. And I started there on page one. And just read. Well, as I read and read for probably 10 months, um, got to the end of the Old Testament, thought there's no way that's the end of God's story, started in the New Testament, uh, took, I don't know, three, four months probably, and I was uh, driving to work one morning, January 17, 2002, and it just hit me. I believed every word in that Bible is absolutely inerrant and true, and the relationship with uh, with Jesus Christ began that morning, 5.30 in the morning. So I just want to give you that so you kind of know where I'm coming from. And uh, Mike said, we're kicking off this, this uh, series overflow this morning. And I want to look at why do we do the things we do? I, I'm not necessarily talking about the bad stuff, but I could be talking about the bad stuff. 
I'm really talking about the, the good stuff, the, work, the good works, the why do we feed the hungry? Why do we take care of widows and orphans? You know, why do we um, honor our mothers and fathers? Is it that we've got this to-do list that we're checking off all the little things on our to-do list? Is it so that at the end of December we've got more nices than naughties? Is that the reason that we do it? Or, or do we do it um, in gratitude to a God that, and I look at my life and I say, I can, I can almost, in my mind, I can see him reaching down out of heaven and plucking a sinner like me right out of the gates of hell. And he, and he says to me, if you'll let me, I'll change your heart. Do my actions result from an overflow of that heart, a heart, maybe even a mind that's been changed? Now, Paul said in the book of Romans, he said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that word that he uses, uh, transformed, in Greek is metamorpho. It's the word that, that uh, we get metamorphosis from. It's a movement from a caterpillar, or a transformation from a caterpillar into a butterfly. It's the Bible speaks often and the Bible speaks loudly about change and about transformation and about newness and about conversion. Is that where my actions are coming from? So let's, let's, let's look for a minute and let's see if the heart really is at the heart of this whole deal. I want to start us off by backing up probably 35, 3,600 years ago when the Lord delivered Israel out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They wandered in the desert for about 40 years, and all the while they were led by this guy named Moses. We believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we believe that he penned that while they were in the desert. And in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, he said, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, Yahavta Eid Adonai Elohecha, Bechol Levavacha, Uvakol Nafshaka, Uvakol Miodecha. You thought I was speaking in tongues, didn't you? That's Hebrew. That's Hebrew. And here's what that says in English. It says, hear, O Israel. And he's saying, hear me. Hear me, Israel. And you've got to think, they've been in slavery for 400 years. They've been surrounded by all these other gods. And he's saying, hear me, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord our God, your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And it's interesting, if you look in your Bible where the word Lord is written in all capitals, that is the Hebrew behind that. Now, now there's a lot of different names that are used for God in the Bible. Here, whenever you see it in all capitals, it is God's personal name, Yahweh, that is behind that. And he's saying that, I'm, he's, I'm giving you my personal name, I am the only one true God, and I want to have a relationship with you. So shoot back to, uh, to when I was a kid, and I, and I told you a minute ago that I was raised Jewish, and I really didn't know anything at all about this Jesus stuff. I didn't know anything about this faith thing. I didn't know anything about this heaven thing. I didn't know anything about this hell thing. I didn't know anything about this eternity thing. I grew up, <clears throat> my dad is a West Point graduate, and he served our country in Korea. My mother came here from Germany in the early 30s. Most all of her family, uh, grandparents, aunts, uncles, died in Theresienstadt, which is one of the concentration camps in Europe. And so all I knew growing up was that I better act right. Um, we were taught absolute, this, this is right and this is wrong, and I better act right or, or, because they ran a tight ship. I better act right or my hind end was going to get torn up. All that really mattered was, was how do you treat your fellow man? And I was taught that, that 
I could be a master of my own fate. I was taught that, uh, that I have the ability, I can choose to be righteous. I can, I can righteous myself and I have the ability to do that. And ultimately we were taught about following the commandments. And there's not 10 commandments in the Bible, there's 613 commandments in the Bible. And I gotta keep all of those things. Well, let's, let's talk for a minute about, <clears throat> about where that all came from. Bounce back again, back to, to Jesus' time. In fact, let's bounce back a couple of hundred years prior to his birth. And uh, in history, about 200 years before that, the Pharisees, who were the super religious folks, they came up into history. And their beliefs ultimately became, uh, they were the ancestors of real ritualistic Judaism. Uh, if you've ever seen on TV the, the guys that wear the little black hats, and they got a long black overcoat on, and they've got uh, kind of curly sideburns. They're, uh, today, they're Hasidic Jews, and they're, an, you know, they're the ancestors of the, of the Pharisees. And so let's take a look for a second in Matthew chapter 23. It's pat, let's set the stage a little bit. It's Passion Week. It's the week. That it's almost go time. Um, Jesus is, is getting ready to allow himself to be crucified and tensions are high in Jerusalem. It's the Passover week. There's hundreds of thousands of people that have come up to Jerusalem for the Passover, and Jesus is getting ready to lay, lay down the hammer on the Pharisees. And, and it's going to sound like he gets angry, and there probably is some anger in there, but there is also tremendous sadness. Um, when he says the word woe, which I'm going to read to you in a minute, there's tremendous sadness in that. So this is Matthew chapter 23, Verse 23, 4, 5, and 6, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Do y'all know, stupid question maybe, but do you know what a hypocrite is? Well, <clears throat> Jesus calls them hypocrites twice here, and he calls them that all throughout, really, this passage in Matthew. But that word comes from the Greek, hypocrites, which is the same word that when an actor puts a mask on and pretends to be somebody or something that he's not. That's the same word that Jesus is using there when he calls the Pharisees hypocrites. He's really saying to them, you guys have so focused on the wrong thing and now you're dragging all these people in Jerusalem down the same path, down that wrong, uh, that wrong focus on, on looking and, and teaching and uh, you're dragging all your friends down that road. Now, I don't know if any of y'all remember the Olympics in 2004. There was a guy named Matt Emmons. He was on the U.S. rifle team, and he was in the 50-meter three-position rifle event, which doesn't mean anything to me, but I guess that means maybe he was on a knee one time, standing up one time, I don't know. But he had, it was up on a tee. He was set, it was the last round. He was set up for the gold medal. All he had to do is hit the target. He didn't need a bullseye. He just needed to hit the target. And normally, the shot that he made would have got an 8.1, which would have been way more than enough to get a gold medal. It's a pretty big deal to get a gold medal in the Olympics. So Matt Eamons sets up, and he's aimed down lane two. 
That's where the target is. And somehow he focuses on the target on lane three, pulls the trigger, hits an 8.1. What do you reckon the score when you hit in the Olympics? The score is when you hit the target in the wrong lane. That would be zero. So he didn't get a gold medal. He didn't get a silver medal. He didn't get a bronze medal. He didn't get no kind of medal. He got eighth place. And I feel like that is sort of, <coughs> did I blow somebody's hair? No. I, I feel like that is what happens to us sometimes. And it's not a question of effort. It's not a question of desire. It's not a, it's not a question of skill. People are following hard and they're checking all this stuff off of their list. But the problem is it's not Jesus that they're following. Without even realizing it, they have lined up like that. And we do it all the time. And we, we're lined up and we're focusing on the wrong thing. We're focusing on a bunch of, of religious rules and regulations and rituals. And we need to take our eyes and move them back like that and focus on him. If, if it was today and Jesus was given these woes, we don't even use that word anymore. But if he was going to give a woe to the church, the, 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 the big C church, he may say, woe to you church folks and Bible thumpers if you are as passionate about feeding the hungry as you are about fighting about the kind of music that you play in your churches, we wouldn't have a hunger problem. Um, and that would be, he would be laying down the hammer on us, but it would also be sorrowful the same way it was when he was speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus never ever condemns any act of obedience in the scriptures. Um, he doesn't say that he came to abolish the law. In fact, he specifically says, I did not come to abolish the law. But what he does is he attacks the motivation uh, of the Pharisees. He says, over years, these 200 years, you've jacked up the law. You've added more and more and more and more stuff to it. You changed it. This is a supernatural book. It's not for us to change. And they changed it and they changed it and they changed it. In fact, something like keeping the Sabbath day became don't drive, don't flip a light switch, don't turn your oven on, you know, don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do. And in fact, what the Pharisees did in writing in hundreds of pages of commentary, which is called the Mishnah, <coughs> they came up with 39 categories of prohibited activities on the Sabbath. Hundreds of pages about the fourth commandment. This is, if you can see that, that says uh, Mishnah Shabbat, which is the commentary on the Sabbath. Um, I'm going to read you the 39 categories. Now, these are not necessarily 39 specific acts that are forbidden. There's hundreds of acts within each one of these 39 categories, and I'm not that great at math, but figure it out. It's a bunch of them. But I want to read you what the categories are. Seeding, plowing, reaping, gathering, threshing, winnowing, sorting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing, bleaching, disentangling, dyeing, spinning, stretching threads on a loom, preparing to weave, weaving, unweaving, tying a knot, untying a knot, sewing, tearing, trapping, slaughtering, skinning, salting, tracing lines, scraping, cutting, writing two or more letters, erasing two or more letters, building, couldn't get through that without coughing. Building, demolishing, extinguishing, kindling, finishing an object, and transporting an object from domain to domain. Now, you tell me, is that what God meant when he told Moses on the mountain, I'm giving you the Sabbath, keep it holy, and rest? There ain't no way. I think if, if I come home from, 
from work and it's Friday night, if we're talking about the, their Friday night to Saturday night Sabbath, and I pull out a note card and I write a note to my wife, Susan, just want to tell you that I loved you. Love, not past tense. Susan, I love you. I'm violating the Sabbath because I don't know how many letters are in there, but it's more than two. And that's just ridiculous. There is absolutely no way that that, that is the spirit of what God told them in the desert. <clears throat> so take all of that that the Pharisees had said and take all of that that the Pharisees had taught and let's look at Matthew chapter 5. This is going to be first. 20 in Matthew chapter 5, and Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest block of instruction that Jesus gives anywhere in the Bible. It's the longest sermon that he, that he, uh, that he preaches in the Bible. And as an aside, <clears throat> it is in a place in Israel around the Sea of Galilee on some little hills that for whatever reason, and I don't believe in coincidence, this is all nothing but God, acoustically, it is the perfect place on the planet for somebody to stand and preach talking normal and thousands of people be able to hear him. So he says this to his disciples and to, um, to a bunch of people that are there. He says, and they know who the Pharisees are and they know about all the rules and regs. And so here's what he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the Pharisees, the super religious guys, I got to, and they say, I've got to, and you've got to, your righteousness has got to surpass them. And I think, you've got to be kidding. I go to my church. You're supposed to laugh. I thought that was funny. <laughs> How in the world am I going to do, be better and do more and keep all of these bajillion different rules? There's no way. They've laid it all down and there's no way that I can do that. In fact, they had organized the scripture. I told you there were 613 laws. They had organized them into 365 negative commandments and 248 positive commandments. And they said that if you lived up to their, their interpretation of the law, then you will be righteous in the sight of God. It doesn't make any sense to me. My little brain can't get around that. The problem is that every single one of those commandments that they throw out in your face has to do with external conduct. It doesn't have to do with what's going on on the inside. It has to do with just outward acts. <clears throat> they had interpreted the law that way. They said that it is wrong to commit murder. Of course it's wrong to commit murder. But they didn't say anything about the hate inside a man that produces murder. They said it's wrong to commit a, a, adultery. Of course it's wrong to commit adultery. But they didn't say anything about the lust in a man's heart or a woman's heart that would lead them to commit adultery. They said it's wrong to steal. Of course it's wrong to steal. But they didn't say anything about the covetousness and the jealousy that I have for my neighbor's stuff that would cause me to go break in his house and steal something. They just said that as long as I wasn't caught in the act, then I was righteous in their eyes, in, in their eyes. And they thought, therefore, in God's eyes. Are you tracking with me? It doesn't make any sense. God's bar, God's standard the standard that he uses to evaluate you and me is the standard of the heart. The message is clear. He, of course, he is, he's concerned with external behavior, but that behavior is only justified insofar as it's an outgrowth and an overflow, to use our buzzword, an overflow of a heart that's been changed. Of course it's important, but it's the heart that is more important. 
So obviously we're not all a bunch of raving lunatic mass murderers, but we all are born with a heart defect. We all are born with an inclination towards sin and pridefulness and, and selfishness. But the good news is, is my God is in the heart cleaning business and he is good at it. Today the rituals may be different. They may be preaching and teaching and tithing and church attendance, but that's not what makes a Christian a Christian. I mean, it's not. The, the Pharisee of today would check those things off his list and say, yeah, I tithed and yeah, I went to church every Sunday. And then they go to work on Monday morning and they lie and cheat and steal with all the people they work with. Again, that don't make no sense to me. We are commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. And the fact that we're checking these religious duties off on our list that is not the standard of holiness. The test is when I look at the man in the mirror and I say, dude, how is your relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is it right? Is the, is the way that you treat the people that you come into contact with, does that jive with the demands of a holy God? That's the question we got to ask to see if our heart is right. So th at this point, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, it's that they're more interested with the commentary than with the scripture. You saw that thing I pulled up that was all about the commentary. You know, what we think and what we, what we, what we long for in our quiet time, what we desire, what we want in our, in our very core, that is the stuff that matters. It's the state of our hearts that make a difference. And Jesus said to the Pharisees again in Luke 16, 15, he said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. And at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, he says, he's turning their world upside down. He said, blessed are the pure at heart, for they shall see God. So it, it really is about the heart. The man who has been reborn, the man who's been renewed, the man who's indwelt in his heart with the Holy Spirit, his righteousness does exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees because it exceeds it in kind, not degree, but in the kind of righteousness that it is. <coughs> Again, the, it, the outside is only validated as much as it's a picture of what is going on on the inside. So now that we're almost 20 minutes into this, we'll get to the passage that this sermon is all about, which is Colossians chapter 3, and that's in the New Testament. That is about midway in the New Testament. We're going to look at all of chapter 3. It's a fairly short chapter. But it's Paul writing, and what he's talking about is this overflow. He's talking about this heart change. And so what he says in verse 1 of, of chapter 3 he says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul says, set your hearts on the things above. Paul doesn't say, email your test of do's and don'ts to Jesus at God.com and oh, by the way, you got to make a 75 or better to pass. It's not what he says. He says, turn your laser focus, turn your heart turn your soul, turn everything that Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, turn it all and turn it above. That's different than checking all these little things off the list. We do this because the rest of verse 1 says, it says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated, and you're doing that, why? Because you have been raised with Christ. 
So we do this because we've been raised with Christ. We do it, the power of the resurrection is exactly what he's talking about. And the power of that resurrection allows us to live as winners over sin. The power of that resurrection allows us to live as winners over all of the junk that gets thrown at us out in the world. And oh, by the way, the power of that resurrection allows me to overflow, my heart to overflow, and I can... I, and I can, the fruit just will reek off of me out into a lost and dying world. And that's what lost people need to see. So he goes on, <clears throat> let's look in verse 5. In verse 5, he says, put to death, Paul, he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken, <coughs> since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and in, in the image of its creator. So he says at the beginning of that, put to death therefore. Therefore what? Therefore, because you have been raised and credited with being there with Christ at the resurrection, and therefore, because now my, my focus is looking up and, and in the right place, and you remember the mask of the hypocrite that we talked about a little while ago, Paul's telling us right there, get rid of the mask. You don't need the mask anymore. You don't need to try to pretend to be somebody that you're not. And he says in verse 10, Put on the new self. You're a new creation. You've, you've been metamorphosized. I don't know if I said that right. It's probably not the right way. But we're a, we've gone from being a caterpillar to being a butterfly. And that's what Paul's talking about. Verse 12, 13, and 14, he says, <clears throat> Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, <clears throat> put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Because God chose us and because God chose to love us, our mindset needs to be different. We ought to be different on this side of conversion than we were on this side of conversion. If there's no difference, you got to... Paul would say you're not a new creation, so there should be a difference. Um, love ought to be my overcoat now. And so if love is my overcoat and I love the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength, and I love all of you the same way, then I'm going to reek of all these things that, that Paul talks about. And what is it? Compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. That's what folks need to see. So he finishes these thoughts in verse 15, 16, and 17. And there he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message or the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all the wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, and therefore what you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so if we, if we look at verse 15, peace has got to rule our hearts. What does he say? He says, let the peace of Christ rule our hearts. 
If I come in conflict with somebody, if, if I have a difference with somebody, the yardstick that will rule needs to be Christ's peace. And it's his peace. And the only way that I can get a hold of his peace is to come to know him better and better and more and more. And his peace can make a difference in my life. Verse 16, let the word of Christ, Christ dwell richly inside of you. It, his word, this word, should be living inside of me. And I've got to know it. It's not about memorizing 150 scripture verses. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But if I have memorized all these scripture verses so that I can check it off on my list and say, today I tithed and I went to church and I memorized all these scripture verses and I got me three checks. So I'm on the way to my 75 that I got an email to jesusatgod.com. Doesn't make any sense to me. I've got to know the word because I want it to dwell richly inside of me, but I've got to know it because I want to live it and I want to bear fruit for the Lord out there and I got to know what that even means. And, and this is what he left us to understand what that means. And it needs to abide in me when he says uh, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly that word dwell means it's got to live inside of me and I've got to it's just got to overflow out of me so verse uh, verse 17 which is the pinnacle of the, of the passage verse 17 says and whatever you do whether in word or deed do it in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God through the Father uh, God the Father through him so this is the Jesus lover, the Jesus freak, the guy that's been metamorphosized, ought to have a heart that does everything in the name of Christ. And he does all of that because of what the Lord did for him. Now, <clears throat> that again is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Whenever you speak, Christ should pepper that conversation. Whenever we act, our behavior ought to honor and represent Christ. And when we, don't, we don't do it out of some twisted, jacked-up obligation. We do it out of a heart that's been transplanted and because we love him. Um, I'm going to go down a different sort of road for a second, so, so hang with me. <clears throat> what if for one day Jesus were to become you? What if for 24 hours, Jesus wakes up in your bed, he puts on your slippers, he puts on your bathrobe, he lives in your house, <clears throat> he goes to your job. What if for just one day and one night, he lives your life with his heart? Your heart gets the day off. Your life is led with his heart. His priorities control your actions. His passions drive every decision that you make. What would you be like? Would you be any different than you are today? Would the people down at work see any difference in that? Would, would the parents at the ball field see a different coach if that coach's heart was Christ's heart? What about the poor? Would you treat them any differently? What about the people that ain't so nice? Would you show them just a little more grace or a little more mercy? And then how about, and then how about you? Would, would there be more joy in your life? Would, what effect would that transplant have on your stress level? You know, would you, in a traffic jam, would you act any different? Um, would you still dread the stuff that you dread? And more importantly, would you still do the things that you do? Now, I want you all to keep thinking about that for a minute, and you're going to have to bear with me. I want everybody to close, close your eyes. 
and I'm going to go a little old school on you. Close your eyes, and I want you to imagine and get a clear picture of Christ's heart leading you. Ingrain that in your mind, and if anybody remembers what a Polaroid camera was, I want you to click the shutter of that picture that is in your mind, and now open your eyes, and then in your hands, look at what it looks like for Christ's heart to lead your life. That is what God wants. He wants you to look and act and speak and talk and, and be the very image of Christ on the earth. He loves me and you just like we are, obviously, but he does not want to just leave us like that. And if you think for a second that, if, that he's going to love you more if, uh, or love you deeper if you have more deep theological thoughts, he's not going to love you more like that. If, it, if you think he's going to love you more if your faith were stronger, he's not going to love you more if your faith were stronger, just like he's not going to love you less if you sin. His love never changes. It never ceases. We can spit on him, crucify him, despise him, throw stuff up at him, scream and yell at him. That has no effect on his love for us. Don't, don't equate the way that he loves us with the way man, uh, with the way people love each other. People's love is tied to performance. His love is not tied to performance. There is no greater picture, there is no greater image of that love that I'm talking about than if you look at what happened when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And I've never read it any better than in a book called Just Like Jesus. I want you to think for a second about it's Passover week again in Jerusalem. And Jesus and his guys are, have gone up into the, up this upper room and they got this big table set up because they're going to have this Passover feast. <clears throat> and they walk in one by one. And as each one of them walks in, hanging up on the wall is a towel and under that towel is a bucket of water. And every one of them walked in. Peter, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, boom, whatever, whatever their names are, Judas. They all, none of them grabbed the towel and none of them grabbed the bucket. They could have you know, but they didn't. And so as they all sit down, after a few minutes, Jesus gets up and he wraps the, 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 the apron of a servant on and he walks over and he grabs that towel and he grabs that bucket of water and the washing of feet back in the day was reserved for the absolute, the lowest of lowly servants is the one that washed feet. And so Jesus walks over there again. He grabs that bucket and he grabs that towel. And one by one, he knelt and he washed one filthy, nasty foot after the next. <clears throat> In this case, the one that was kneeling and scrubbing was the creator of the universe. The very hands that hung the moon and stars are now scrubbing dirt off of feet. The one that knelt down before them um, Every knee's going to bow sometime in the future to the guy that's bowing right now and washing feet. It's his way of showing them just how much he loves them. And, and he's God. He knows exactly what's going to happen over that next 24 hours. You can bet that he knows that the hands that are wiping those feet right now are going to be pierced with nails less than 24 hours later. You can bet that he also knows what the next 24 hours is going to hold for those 12 guys whose feet that he's washing. Those 24 feet are not going to spend the next 24 hours defending their master's cause. They're not. 
They're going to run at the sight of a Roman sword. They're going to scream in denial and run the other way. There's only one set of feet in that room that he washed that won't even make it that far. So as many different translations of this Bible as you may look for, 20, 30, 40 different translations, Google it, Bing it, do whatever you want to, try to find it, but you're never going to find a translation of the Bible that says that he washed every set of feet except the feet of Judas. He washed Judas's feet too. The feet of the guy that in 24 hours in Caiaphas's court are going to betray Christ, he is sitting there on the floor on his knees washing those feet. Now, I cannot imagine any crazy act of sacrificial outside of the cross, of, of love and humility as, as doing that. He knows that in the morning, all of those heads, those 12 heads are going to be bowed in shame. They're going to look down at their feet. They're going to have their head in their hands, and they're going to look down at their feet. And what they're going to see and what Jesus wants them to see is those feet are still clean. He cleaned those feet. What an unbelievable, crazy thought that he forgave their sins before they even committed the sin. He showed them and offered them mercy and grace before they even sought the mercy and grace. And here's what you may be saying. You may be saying, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what he said. You don't know what she said. You don't know what he did. You don't know what she did. I just cringe when I see that person. You don't know. You just don't know about all that stuff. And here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's what the Lord is going to tell you in his word. Try fixing your eyes on him rather than them. And here's what he does. He's going to go get that bucket of water and that towel and he's going to kneel down in front of me and you and he's going to see the deepest, darkest, worst acts of our lives. He's going to see the most terrible, horrific hurts of our lives. And rather than jumping back in disgust, he's going to dip the towel in the bucket of grace and say, I can wipe that clean if you'll let me. Now, if you have already let him do that, you are empowered to live that life of overflow. And if you haven't let him kneel in front of you and wipe you clean, let today be the day that you do that. So I just ask you, what you going to do? Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. We love you with all our heart and all our strength and all our soul, with everything inside of us. And we love you because you are who you say you are. Lord, we love you because you can do everything that you say you can do. And Lord, I pray that any uh, anybody uh, in this church today that has heard these words and, and gets that and, under, and they want you to wipe them clean, that they will take that step today, that they will, uh, they will receive that mercy and that grace that you offer. They will let you pull that towel and that bucket off that wall and, and wash them clean. And Lord, I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.